All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 4. A lot of stuff that I want to cover tonight. But before we uh, start going through chapter 4, I want to just mention a couple things. I want to make a couple statements that is important that you understand. All right, when it comes to the Bible, we do believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, right? The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So the Bible is a very powerful book. But did you know that the Bible is not a magical book? So what do you mean by that? Well, another, what I mean by when I say the Bible's not a magical book, what I mean is every word in the Bible, it's true. But you know what? It means what it says, but it also means the same thing that it said. In, or it means the same thing that it meant in 1611. Do you understand that? So if we have a, or if you have a different understanding of a word, it, that does not become the new reality. you all understand that? Okay, the Bible is truth. But if you misunderstand a phrase, a statement, a word, that you do not shape a new reality. Okay? So, for example, let's just say that I were to write a book about a group of people that are maybe only named once in the Bible. All right? I, don't, I can't think of any good examples, but there's a lot of different groups mentioned in the Bible. All right? And let, you know, let's say Huzz and Buzz. All right? Those are two guys, two guys you'll see mentioned in the Bible. And let's say I wrote a book about these guys. And it became really famous. And, I, and these guys had all these magical powers and, you know, could, uh, you know, communicate with dragons and uh, flying, you know, do, flying beasts and things like that and rode unicorns. And, I'm right, and I write this really cool story about them. And that's who Huzz and Buzz were. Well, that doesn't mean now I can go to the Bible and prove that there's magical people that could ride dragons and rode, or ride unicorns you know, named Huzz and Buzz because Huzz and Buzz are in the Bible, right? Do you all understand that? And a lot of times, people, they get these misunderstandings of things. For example, when it comes to giants, okay? You know, if you let Jack and the Beanstalk define what a giant is, if that's your definition of a giant, doesn't mean it's the Bible's definition of a giant. Do you all understand that? And so just because today we think about giants as something that are maybe 50 feet tall, doesn't mean that's what they thought in the Bible days. So it's important that you... When you're studying the Bible, that you get what the Bible is teaching and from not what you want. And chapters 4, 5, and 6, you need to understand chapters 4, 5, and 6, they all go together. Okay? They all go together. You need to read all three of these chapters as one. We're not going to do that. And the title of the message is Introducing the Sons of God. We are going to get introduced to the sons of God. Now, a lot of people believe that they are the sons of Seth. Some people believe that they are the Nephilim mixture of fallen angels or that they were angels that came and if, if people who believe the you know the angel thing or the nephilim doctrine they are not my enemies i'm not here to pick on them or anything like that but i don't believe it and over the next three weeks i'm going to show how that's not true and i i was at, there was a time in my life where i was kind of really on the fence with that doctrine, but I'm just, I'm a hundred percent convinced now that that is not the case. And if somebody believes different, they are not my enemy, but I don't believe it. I, I really don't. And what I intend to do in the next three weeks is prove that, you know, mainly focusing on Genesis four five and six. And then I'm probably going to do like I did with the gap theory, a bonus video answering all the other scriptures that people go to. I plan on doing that. So pay very close attention. This is, it's important. This is something I try to teach you know, everybody here all the time, when you study the Bible, you know, there's some rules you ought to follow. There's some, you know, you don't want to be reckless with how you interpret the Scriptures. You also need to be consistent 
in how you interpret the Scripture. As somebody who tries to preach through the entire Bible, I want to make sure I'm consistent in my teaching. And if I'm reckless with one part of the Bible, it's going to end up contradicting with what I preach somewhere else. I don't have the luxury of doing that as a pastor. Now, if I'm a seminar speaker, I can do that because then I can just focus on Genesis and Revelation. You know, and I, I don't have to be consistent. But uh, I, I'm a pastor. I need to be consistent. So it's important that we understand as we go into this chapter that this chapter we're about to read here, it covers hundreds of years. One chapter covers hundreds of years. So we're not allowed to just insert facts in places just because they are possible. We need to focus on what the chapter is actually teaching. And the first ten chapters of Genesis cover around 2,000 years of history. So while there might be many subjects concerning what happened during this time that we are interested in, we need to understand that those subjects may not be what God was interested in. That might not be what he was talking about. And the stories that are in these first chapters are here for a reason. Do you know why these stories are here? We're about to read some interesting things here in chapter 4. Why are these things mentioned here? Why is the story of Cain and Abel here? Why is the story of Lamech? You know, talking about if Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Why is that story in the Bible? It's there for a reason. And if we understood the reason of why they talked about the things they did in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we would understand chapter 6. In chapter 6, people often start there. And that's a mistake. And they're missing the whole point, And that's why they're off. And you know, the true Bible believer too, and I almost hate to use the term Bible believer today because the Ruckmanites have hijacked it. They call themselves the Bible believers movement. But a true Bible believer focuses on what the Bible actually says while a fake Bible believer focuses on what the Bible does not say. That's where they specialize. And we're not allowed to do that. Okay, we're, we're Christians. We're saved. We're not Ruckmanites. So we got to be honest with the Scripture. So let's go ahead and start reading through chapter 4. And it's going to be a while. We're not going to get into a whole bunch when it comes to the sons of God. And I know everybody loves the Nephilim stuff. All right, I understand that. But we got to, we got to build this foundation here. It's important. So it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, his wife, or Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. So what we're about to see here is a real, literal, historical event, but we are also seeing an allegory of something that we see throughout the entire Bible. Okay? What we see, this Cain and Abel story repeats itself over and over again in the Bible. And it's going to continue to repeat itself throughout history. Verse 3, it says, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And people often insert that Cain brought inferior fruit. Okay? And that's what most of the modern versions say, that he brought inferior fruit. But the Bible doesn't say that. All right? We don't see that in the King James Bible. It just says he brought the fruit of the ground. And it says, And Abel, he also brought the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, I think we all should understand why God did not accept the offering of Cain, because what is the offering that God has always wanted for sin? It has always been a blood offering. 
It's always been a blood offering. That's what God has always expected. That's what God has always wanted. And you know, say, well, how did, how was Cain supposed to know that? You know, we don't know all the answers to that we don't need to. Here's what we do know. God didn't care about the work of Cain's hands, but God did have respect to the shedding of blood, to the blood of a lamb. That's what we do know. You say, well, God should have told Cain that ahead of time. You know what? Don't tell God what he should have done. Okay? At the end of the day, God did not accept the work of Cain's hands. God accepted the blood sacrifice. And, God, and so God tells Cain, you know, he's like, I don't know why you're wroth, why your countenance falling. He's like, if you do well, shalt thou not be accepted. If thou doeth not well, sin lieth at the door. In other words, the sin's still there. He says, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. If you do better, you'll rule over him. Okay? But that's not what happened. God's telling Cain if he would just do good, that he would rule over Abel. God's giving Cain a chance. But Cain failed. So, what is, and let's turn over to Jude chapter 1 and verse 10. Because what is the way of Cain? For example, we really don't know a whole lot about Cain except that he brought the, the work of his hands for a sacrifice and he killed his own brother. And it says in Jude 1 verse 10, but these speak evil of things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the Arabalum for reward and perishing in the gainsaying of course. So what is that way of Cain? And I personally believe it's people just doing their own thing thinking God will accept them. Well... You know what? Yeah, you all have your religion. Y'all are one of these, you know, faith alone, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ people. But you know, I think my way is good too. I think me bringing the work of my hands, I think me getting baptized and just being a good person, I think that's good enough. Well, that's what Cain thought too. And how did that work out for Cain? It didn't work out for Cain. And so we, uh, we see in verse 8, it says in Cain, talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Okay. Now, first off, it was God that accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. How was that Abel's fault? All Abel did was what God wanted, but yet Cain decides to go after Abel and he kills his own brother. Why is that? Well, it's the first same thing we see in 1 John 3.11. It says, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. And you know, that's the same thing too when it comes to the Jews and the Christians. Why is it that the Jews hated the Christians? Because their works were evil, and their brothers were righteous. And so they, what did they do? They literally went after their own brothers in the flesh. Okay? You all realize in the book of Acts, most of these Christians that are being persecuted by the Jews were Jews who got saved. They are killing their own brothers just like Cain killed Abel. And you know what? The work salvation crowd is always the enemies of the faith crowd. Always. There's always that battle there. They've always are trying to kill them. They're always trying to stop them. What do you think they were doing in the Inquisition all those years? You know, think about all the persecution throughout history that Baptists have endured. Why? Baptists have never attempted to control the government. 
and run the government. They've never attempted to force their religion on anybody. I mean, they teach works to do good works and to live decent moral lives. Why are they hated so much? You know why? Because God accepts us and God rejects them and they're jealous. Their works are evil and they don't want to admit it. So this story of Cain and Abel, it's very clear why this is in the Bible. This is something that we see throughout the Bible. We see the older brother and the younger brother. We see the younger brother who is chosen over the younger brother being chosen over the older brother. We see that throughout the scriptures with Ishmael and Isaac, with Esau and Jacob, with Manasseh and Ephraim, with Adam and Jesus. We see that over and over again. We see it with the prodigal son, the younger brother and the older brother. So there's, there, it's, very, it's very simple to see why this story is in the Bible. This story is not just in the Bible because it happened. Even though it did happen. It's there for a reason. It's showing us something that it's a thing in history that's going to continue repeating itself forever. And we will always... The, the work salvation crowd will always be enemies of us. They'll always be trying to stop us. And again, eventually again, they'll try to kill us. And they are trying to kill us in other countries. Anywhere they can get away with it, they're, the people, even in the United States, that hate us, they would kill us if they could. They just can't right now. But if they had the opportunity, they would. And that has been proven throughout history. We would not kill our enemies. We would not try to kill those who teach a false gospel. We just want to expose them. We want to mark them. But they want to kill us. And they have throughout history. And it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. So the Jews in Jesus' day, they were recognized for being a part of the same group and the same spirit that caused Cain to kill Abel. Matthew chapter 23, verse 35 says that upon you may come all the righteous bloodshed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Jesus credited the Jews for killing Abel. Now, how did they do it? There weren't even any Jews yet back then. I'll tell you why. Because they were of the same spirit. It was the exact same spirit that the Jews had in Jesus' day that Cain had in his day. The exact same thing. And throughout Jewish history, they were constantly killing the prophets. They were constantly killing those who told the truth. Throwing them in prison. Persecuting them. And then they went on and they did it to the same to, to Jesus' disciples after this happened. So nothing's changed, okay? You know, and think what is it about Christianity that makes it so hated by the world? Okay? And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I'm not worth hating. Yeah, I'm hated by a lot of people. Why? What is it that makes Christianity so hated? And the truth is nothing. They just hate God. Okay? Don't think that you are, you know, don't get so full of yourself that you think people actually hate you. Okay? You're not worth hating. None of us are actually worth hating. It's God that they hate. And if you represent God, and if you're spreading God's message, you're spreading God's truth, then, you know, you're going to be, you know, you, know you're, you might get some attention because of the fact that you're promoting God, but it's God that they hate. It's not you. Okay? The world cannot hate you. Okay? But Jesus, they hate. They hate God. So verse 9 says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? 
So notice the snarky, rebellious attitude of Cain that he has after killing his brother, and he thinks he's going to put one over on God. And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. That's interesting there too. You know why? Because the shedding of innocent blood brings a curse on the land. That's something we also see throughout the Bible. The shedding of innocent blood is something we should not take lightly. God hates those who shed innocent blood. Hates it. And we ought to be against it. We ought to stand against it. And our country is in a lot of trouble. None of us should be surprised. If, if, listen, if we find out tomorrow nukes are heading our way, don't anybody say, Lord, why? I hope none of us would ever be so foolish. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, if I heard nukes were flying this way, we were all going to be obliterated in an hour, the one thing I would not say is, Lord, what are you doing? I would be like, well, at least we still got an hour because we deserved to have been blown up years ago for all the, all the innocent blood that we've shed. And I would, and I, yeah, I have nothing to say. I'd just be glad I'm saved. I'm glad I'm saved because whatever this country ever gets, we deserve it. Our country deserves. I mean, with the amount of blood we shed, I mean, it's, it's horrible. When you think about just some of the wars we fought, abortion, we, we deserve it. We've got, we've got it coming. And so every day where we are not judged, we ought to just be thankful for it. We ought to thank God for His mercy and just you know, hope we can get a few more people saved so they can go to heaven for when the time does come, when our country does get what's coming to it. So, because we're we're, beg, we're begging for it, and it's going to come. There's no doubt about it. So it says in verse eleven, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand, when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be upon the earth. Now let me ask you, the curses that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, were those just on Adam and Eve or was it on the descendants too? Okay, Ladies, does it hurt when you have babies? Yeah, you better believe it hurts. And it's, it wasn't just on Eve. It was on all the women after that. Okay, You know, men, do we have to work? Do we have to sweat? You better believe we do to make a living. All right, We're not just living in paradise where just, you know, food's just falling on our table. Right? It, takes, it takes work. This curse that is put on Cain here was not just on Cain, it was on his descendants. It was on, it was on his line. And notice how it says, <clears throat> the ground is not going to yield her strength. So does that mean it's going to yield nothing? No, obviously, otherwise it's going to yield something. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to survive, right? But it's not going to, he's not going to be blessed. It's going to be difficult for him. This is a curse that was put on Cain. Keep that in mind. And, it, and Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. <clears throat> Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall, shall slay me. Now, if you're a hyper-literalist, Cain literally left the earth. Okay? Because he got driven from the face. The Bible says he got driven from the face of the earth. So Cain went and dwelt on another planet after that. I mean, if you believe your King James Bible, uh, it says he got driven from the face of the earth. All right. Well, you know, he lived on a boat on the water because the earth, he could be referring to the ground, you know, because, you know, obviously he couldn't went to another planet. Now, you know what that means? Okay. Often in the Bible, it's, remember, it's perspective. Okay. It's not a magical book. 
So when it says that he was driven from the face of the earth, it doesn't mean he went to another planet or another realm or lived on the water. You know what it meant? It meant he was not, he was driven from where people were living. The known earth. Okay, and I'm going to prove that to you because the Bible tells us where he dwelt. Tells us where, so that's why don't go hyper literal because you are wanting to just prove some other subject from the Bible. We all want to go to the Bible to prove everything. And so you're just going to go all hyper literal on a verse that has nothing to do with the subject that you're talking about. You can't do that. That's the kind of thing that gets us in trouble. And that's the kind of thing that gets people preaching about the Nephilim. Let's keep reading. So this God puts this heavy curse on Cain. The earth is not going to yield its strength. He will survive, but he will not thrive. Alright? So, verse 15 says, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Now, why would anybody want to kill him? Now, I understand that we do not see God institute the death penalty until after the flood. But that doesn't mean they didn't have some kind of death penalty back then. Or that they wouldn't have just known to start the death penalty. Because he's like, I killed my brother. Everyone who's going to find me is going to want to slay me. Yes, you know why? Because they understood, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed even before that command had been given. Because it's just common sense. You kill a man, you ought to be put to death. Death penalty just makes sense. It's just, it's common sense. And it, it's just right. So, you know, did they have a death penalty during that time? I don't know. They probably didn't need one up to that point. I'm assuming, you know, Abel's probably the first person that ever got murdered. It was probably the first person to ever die. Definitely the first one that the Bible records. But God chooses to be merciful to Cain and says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to set a mark on you so people will know not to kill you. Because if they do, they'll be avenged sevenfold. Now, what was that mark? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Okay, I don't know what the mark of Cain looks like. All right, yes, God put a mark on Cain, but if somebody comes up with some weird mark of Cain that you know means some mystical thing and has some mystical powers, it doesn't mean that the Bible teaches that type of thing. Okay? God just set a mark that the people back then would see and know that's Cain. Leave him alone. Okay? And the truth is, why? Why would anybody be seeing him if he got driven from the face of the earth? Because other people might end up going to that part of the earth that he ended up going to. So, you know, some of this stuff's just common sense. But if you just want to zero in on one verse and go hyper literal, you can create all kinds of crazy stories. But we're not allowed to do that. That's not that's not that's not being honest with the Bible. So, and, and you know, so God put that mark because nobody's going to want to kill a guy who God will avenge sevenfold. Now I don't know how that works too. How do you, how do you get a, if if you kill somebody? How do you and you're supposed to die for it? How do you get avenged sevenfold? Well, that just proves that God was going to kill him, raise him up from the dead, kill him again. Raise him, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that means for sure, but it sounds really bad. Okay, we don't get to make things up. Right, and so it says in verse 16, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Odd on the east of Eden. So he stayed on the planet. Okay. He stayed on the planet, but this was obviously a place that was uninhabited by man. It was a new place where he went, so he stayed on this earth. Verse 17, 
And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Okay? And let's just go ahead and briefly touch on where did Cain get his wife? Because that's always the big question. Where did Cain get his wife? And the truth is, Cain married either his sister or a niece. Okay? You say, well, that's, that's just wrong. Okay, can you please tell me why that's wrong? Okay, now there's two reasons it's wrong. One, because later God made a law saying you couldn't do that. But that law came thousands of years later. But two, it's wrong because genetically, that's a terrible thing to do to your kids, isn't it? Genetic, it causes a lot of genetic problems when there is incest. Now, back then, during this time, that probably wasn't a problem. You know, marrying a close relative, you know, they probably wouldn't have had as many birth defects because birth defects, they come from, you know, you know, when we have cognitive, you know, we all have uh, gene mutations and things that are negative. And when you marry a close relative, you're more likely to have those same negative gene mutations, which are going to cause all kinds of problems when you have a kid. When you marry somebody who's not related to you, it's very unlikely that you know they're going to end up having that problem. So that the thing is, though, back during Adam and Eve's day and Cain's day, they wouldn't have had as many of these mutations. So it wouldn't. It would have been highly unlikely that there would be any birth defects and problems. But as time goes on, you know that can become more and more common. That's like you don't want to marry a relative. You know, you don't want to marry a cousin, or I wouldn't even marry a second or third cousin or anything like that. You know, you want to keep the relation as far away as possible, and then you're going to be less likely to have a lot of weird problems. And, um, you know, that, and that's something that just science proves. So, I, you know, we don't need to go making up another race of people that were dwelling on the earth during that time because the Bible says Cain had a wife. No, Cain would have just married either a sister or a niece. You know, we don't even know for sure that Cain and Abel were the only children that Adam and Eve had during this time. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us. So, uh, verse 18, so now notice, we are, talk, we are talking about the line of Cain right now. Okay. Now, why is, why is the Bible bothering to give us the line of Cain? I mean, we all know they got wiped out during the flood, but the Bible's given it for a reason. Everybody that we see, whenever we're going to go through the book of Genesis, we're going to look at a lot of genealogies. They are all there for a reason because they all play some kind of role later on and the Bible is giving us the line of Cain for a reason. It's not just here putting it in here for filler. They, the Bible needed this to be recorded to explain something that was to come. And that's something you're going to see throughout all the genealogies. They're all there for a reason. Okay? If you believe the Nephilim doctrine, then there's no reason. There was absolutely no reason for Cain's genealogy to be mentioned. But it's, it's being mentioned here for a reason. So it says... And he, uh, verse 18, and Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, Mahujael begat Methusael, Methusael begat Lamech, and Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the young was, one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every art in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubalcane was Nama. Okay, now, why is this mentioned? Why are these guys mentioned? Why are they important? And I believe this is showing 
how Cain's line became very innovative because, and this would have been important since they were cursed. Think about it. They are a cursed people. The ground is not going to yield her strength. So they're going to struggle when it comes to this. So they're going to have to be a little innovative. They're going to have to figure out how to do some things that other people might not have needed to know how to do. And so one of the things that they may have been doing, and I don't know for sure, okay, I don't want to go and add to the Scriptures here, but, and this could explain why they were giants. Okay, why, or why they were giants. Because think about this. You know, I, I, one of, when uh, we went to the uh, state capitol in Springfield a couple years back, and the state capitol, it was built, I think, in the late 1800s is when it was built. And there's a lot of stuff there. It's very well preserved. Same as it was then. One of the things I noticed there is the hand railings are all very low there. And you know, one of the reasons it's like that is because in the 1800s, people were a lot shorter back then. I mean, the average height just a little over 100 years ago in the United States was just five feet. I mean, Abraham Lincoln back in his day, he was one of the things he was known for was his height because he was like 6'2", 6'3", which was really tall for back then. But the average height was around five feet. Okay, So, you know, understand that a giant, okay, just because Jack and the Beanstalk, it might be 50 feet tall or something, doesn't mean giants were 50 feet tall. Okay, we know Goliath was six cubits in a span, you know, which was probably eight or nine feet. So, you know, we're not talking like supernatural size right here, but understand a lot of times different cultures back then, they wasn't like the United States, it's a melting pot where we got a little bit of everything. They were all pretty much the same. And so if you had one culture live in one way and another one live in a completely different way, you might have two very different looking people. And so imagine if back then, during that time, as far as we know, they were eating all, you know, fruit and vegetables. We don't see them eating meat until after the flood. God told them basically every living thing, you know, you you can eat it. But I think it's very likely that Cain's line was probably already eating meat. You say, why is that? Well, because we've got one who is the father of those that handle cattle. What were they doing with cattle if they're not eating them? You know, I think it's very likely that these people, since they're not getting much from the ground, are figuring out other ways to eat. Figuring out other ways to survive. And they figured out steak. (laughs) And I don't know. You know, I don't, you know, I don't understand. I'm not a dietitian. I don't understand all these things. But I just tend to think that if you had one group that was just eating fruit and vegetables and things and another group eating meat, I'm going to guess they're probably going to be bigger and stronger than the people eating fruit. When I don't eat meat, I feel weak. I feel weak, I feel tired, and I just, you know, I get grouchy. It's like I got to eat an animal. That's just, you know, that, that's how I am. But just understand, they probably, there, there's many ways they would have been very different. They're living in a completely different way. In Cain's line, they were innovative. So one figures out, you know, he, he's the father of those that dwell in tents and have cattle. So I think they were eating them. As, as personally, you had uh, Jubal, the father of such a handle the harp and organ. You know, he's figuring out entertainment. He's figuring out how to make musical instruments. You got Tubal Cain. He's figuring out how to make things out of brass and iron. Now, what are you going to do with the brass and iron back then? Make weapons. And that's how you can, you know, they start making swords. Hey, if we have these tools like this, you know, we can do more work. We can accomplish more. Where. 
on Seth's side, you know, if you're just living in a world that would we would probably consider a paradise <clears throat> that's growing, you know, where food is growing great, where they're blessed, why do you need weapons? Why do you need all these tools to do all these things if just the land is providing everything for you? But, you know, when you're living in a world where it's not providing for you, you got to get innovative. And so that's what they did. And I believe they began to thrive in spite of the fact that they had been cursed. But these were an evil people. And they didn't, I don't believe they did good things with what they made out of iron and brass. I think they started doing some bad things as a result of it. If you're going to go get in a fight with a bunch of people that got sticks and clubs, wooden clubs, and you've got swords and metal and iron, guess who's going to win that fight? So, I, I personally think they were eating meat. So most people think that nobody ate meat till after the flood. But that's just where we see God okaying it. And in Genesis chapter nine, verse one through four, doesn't mean that nobody was doing it before. So not trying to add to the scriptures, but it just makes sense based on what the Bible's telling us here, because it's telling us these things for a reason. So now we're at verse twenty-three. It says, "And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah." Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Now, Lamech is the first guy that we see with two wives. So, well, I don't see the command for only one wife during this time. You know what? Jesus, he proved that a guy should not put away his wife based on the fact that God made male and female. Because God said, they two shall be one flesh. Jesus used that as proof. They weren't supposed to be having multiple wives even in that day. But Lamech comes along and Lamech says, you know what? I like to, both these women. I'm going to marry both of them. He, he had no right to do that. You know what he's doing? He was being a law to himself. I believe that's why it mentions his two wives. He has children with both of those wives. And then he goes on to say, what's he talking about here? When he says... I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. What it looks like here is that Lamech has killed a man. It looks like he's killed two. It looks like he's killed two people. He's worried because obviously even then people are going to want to kill him. So you know what Lamech does? He doesn't go to God for forgiveness and God doesn't tell him this. He just declares for himself, well, you know what? If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. You know what he was? He was a law to himself. He's making up his own laws. He's making up his own rules. This group here, I believe this is where they started to get very wicked, is what's going on here. That's why the Bible's telling us these stories. Otherwise, why is that story even there? This is showing how the line of Cain is... One, how they survived, how they thrived as a people, but how they became wicked as a people. They became a law, just they started making up their own law. They're not going to God for things. And so, because Lamech was thinking that, it does appear that the death penalty was something that was always around. But the line of Cain, it was following its own law. It was just making it up as they went. They were doing that which was right in their own eyes. Yeah, I killed two people, but Cain got away with it. God said he'd avenge him sevenfold. So for Lamech, seventy and sevenfold is what he's saying. So in verse, so what we've just seen in this chapter here is the origin of the story of Cain and the origin of his people. Now what we are about to look at 
is Seth and the origin of his people. That's what we're going to see through chapter 5. And I'm going, to, I'm going to show you some examples next week to kind of prove this. But then chapter 6 is where we see how they come together. That's when the two lines come together. Okay, So let's go ahead and start reading verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Now, I don't want to you know, get off in the left field and some things here. But what's interesting about this, you know, that name Seth, it means appointed one. And remember how God had told Eve that, you know, he had said the seed of a woman, you know, would bruise the head of Satan. And some people teach that Eve thought that Seth was that appointed one. That Seth, you know, that she thought this is the, this is the fulfillment of, of the Messiah or the appointed seed that God had talked about. And that's why she named him Seth. Because normally you see the men naming people in the Bible. Here we see Eve called him Seth. But obviously it was not Seth. But the Messiah did come through the line of Seth, didn't he? You know, that, you know, but at the same time, it's just kind of an interesting thought. But a lot of people think that she thought that that was the fulfillment. But I think too she's saying here that you know, well, this is, you know, this is God's new chosen one instead of Abel because Seth is basically replacing Abel here. So God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. So verse 26, and it says unto Seth, to him also there was born a son and he called his name Enos. Then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. What's interesting too about the name Enos, that name means mortal. Okay. Now, if, if I may speculate, okay? And since the Nephilim doctrine is 100% speculation, I think I'm allowed to speculate here a little bit myself, okay? But what's interesting, he named him Enos, meaning mortal. Besides um, Abel, chances are nobody has died up to this point, at least of natural causes, okay? Obviously, what's taken place here, too, is be, with uh, Enos being born, it would be before Lamech killed these two people. Because okay, it had gone several generations before it got to Lamech. It's kind of going back in time here. But what I personally think is very possible is it was during this time, because it says it was then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, why weren't they doing it right away? Well, it's just said, if I may speculate, maybe it was during this time when people finally realized, you know what, we are going to die. If Adam lived to be 930 years old, Remember how God said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die? You think Satan ever came along and told you, yeah, you guys aren't going to die. I told you. You're still here. You know, it's hundreds of years later. You're still here. You're not going to die. But maybe it was during this time when all of a sudden, maybe Adam started showing signs of age. Maybe when they all of a sudden started realizing, hey, you know what? You know, Grandpa's getting older. You know, he's not able to... You know, it, we're seeing signs of deterioration here. It very well looks like what God said was true. We're not going to live forever. We are going to die someday. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we, you know, we grew up going to funerals. But that would have been a new thing for them. You know, also, you know, we only live about 70 or 80 years on average. But back then, you know, that would be a pretty foreign concept to them. 
But I think they started figuring out and all of a sudden, you know what they did? They started calling on the name of the Lord. You know why? I believe they're getting saved. And I've heard all kinds of crazy interpretations of what the calling on the name of the Lord was besides getting saved. I heard one preacher get up and say one time, basically what that means, they're calling on the name of the Lord. It was in a defiant way, is what he said. You know, that's why when they start becoming evil, they're just defiantly, you know, calling on God. It's like, what in the world? That, that doesn't even make sense. There's, there's nothing in the scripture that would give us any impression that that's what they were doing. But here at the end of the chapter, it mentions Seth, who gives birth to a son named Enos, which means mortal. I do. I believe it's at this point man realizes he's not going to live forever. And then they begin to call on the name of the Lord. And this is where the sons of God came from. Now, let's look at the mentions of the sons of God in the Bible everywhere except for Genesis and Job. Okay? So you're avoiding it on purpose. No. It's because I need to spend some time on that. We're going to go there. We're going to go there eventually. But let's look at John 1.12. Because say, are, are you stretching it? I mean, right here, it mentions, okay, we see the line of Cain. We see, we're going to see, we see the beginning of the line of Seth. Unlike Cain's line, who's making up their own law, Seth's line begins to call on the name of the Lord. I believe for salvation, I don't think that's a stretch. Okay? In chapter 6, we see the sons of God and the daughters of men intermingling, and now they all get wicked. And now the whole world is wicked. The whole world is filled with violence during that time. But we had a period of time here where you had a line that was doing good, that was doing right. And John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in His name. That's talking about saved people right there. Calls them sons of God. Romans 8.14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of of the sons of God. Philippians 2.15 That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. John 1.3-1 Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So if the sons of God are those that call upon the name of the Lord in the New Testament, why can't they be the ones who called on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament? I mean, wouldn't that only make sense? Unless we're a dispensationalist that thinks there was different ways of salvation throughout history, wouldn't it make sense that, hey, we're the sons of God. What do we do to become the sons of God? Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what they did back then. Therefore, they were the sons of God versus the world who are not God's children. Well, we're all God's children. That's what everybody says all the time. No, not. Not everybody is God's children. So, if, so notice this too, that we do see angels mentioned several times, even in the book of Genesis or you know, throughout the Bible, but nowhere else in the Bible, okay, except for maybe Genesis and Job, Alright? Are they referred to as sons of God? In fact, too, sometimes, even in the book of Genesis, the angels are referred to as men. Okay? Now think about that. So, so for example, Genesis 18. 
verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Verse 16, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? Chapter 19, verse 1. This is after the two men went to Sodom. And there came two angels at Sodom at even. Same, same people, right? These two, they're called two men in chapter 18, and then chapter 19, it calls them two angels. Okay? You say, why, why do you bring that up? Well, here's, you know, now we have a very good explanation, I believe, for why mortal men would be called the sons of God because of the fact they called on the Lord. So now we've got to ask this question Why would the writer of Genesis refer to sons of God? as men who are angels, if the sons of God marrying the daughters of men meant angels marrying humans. Wouldn't that be kind of confusing? You know, why would Moses later refer to these same people as angels and men? Wouldn't that cause confusion? Because in chapter 6, you know, the sons of God, angels, married the daughters of men. Well, if, if he's doing that to distinguish angels from men because we need that distinction because he's telling that story, then why would he be calling angels angels and men? Why would he be bringing that up? So I'm all confused. Why would he call them angels and men? Well, because they had the appearance of men and he didn't know that people were going to come along later saying that you know angels married humans. You know, it doesn't even make sense. So the thing is, there, there's no consistency there. Y'all understand that? If the Bible is not consistent. Even just the writer of Genesis is not consistent. But when you see that sons of God are just saved people, that's very consistent. That, that's real consistent. But yeah, it's not inconsistent to refer to angels as angels sometimes and as men other times. That's not inconsistent. But it is inconsistent if we have a story where angels are marrying daughters of men and that being like a weird... It, it, it doesn't make sense. There's no consistency there. So the sons of God are introduced in Genesis chapter 4 because of the fact that the book of Genesis is ultimately about something. Do you all know what it is? Do y'all, why is it that chapters 1 through 10 covers 2,000 years and then all of a sudden the next 40 chapters only cover maybe a couple hundred years? Why is that? Why did it slow down so much? Why didn't God pay more? You know, Because we wanted to pay more attention to the first... 2,000 years, because that's where all the cool stuff happened with all the hobbits and wizards and, you know, you know, orcs and things like that. You know, that, that's what we like. You know, but then it gets to the normal stuff like we're all used to after the flood. You know, now that we're in the new world instead of Middle Earth. You know, now that we're in, you know, you know now it's, you know, we don't, we don't really care about that because there's not as much, it's hard to, you know, add those things in after the flood. Why is it? Because here is what the book of Genesis is really all about. This is what the Old Testament is all about. It's ultimately, the book of Genesis is ultimately a book about Abraham. 
You know what we're seeing here? We're seeing, and we're gonna, we'll show examples of this as we go through the book of Genesis. But this first ten chapters are a brief history showing how God was looking for a people to serve Him. We see this mentioned later on in the Bible. God was looking for a people and God found it with those people with Abraham. God chose to raise up those people with Abraham, a group of people that he could love, a group of people that he could bless. It started with Abel, but Abel got killed. And then it went to Seth. Then they began to follow the Lord, but then they began to intermingle with the ungodly and the whole world got corrupted and God had to destroy the world. And then God goes to Noah in his line, but then they all got corrupted and they're all at the Tower of Babel doing their own thing, the whole world. And so then, finally, God goes to Abraham. And then that's where things begin to slow down. That's where the focus of the Bible ends up going. Why? Why Abraham? We'll go to, you don't have to turn them in Abraham, uh, Genesis 18, verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Now, why did God care about that? Because God was looking for a people. God was looking to raise up a nation. We see that in Exodus, how God talked about that. God didn't choose them because they were the greatest people. They were the least of people. But these were a people that God chose and God did. God loved Abraham. Abraham was special. Abraham is called the father of those who are of faith. And God did. God cared about Abraham because He knew He would command His children. And it says, uh, And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which He has spoken of him. God was looking for a people. And God chose Abraham. And from Abraham came the children of Israel. And what we see, I believe in the Bible, is the first group of people that we see, they were called the sons of God, of believers. The group of believers, God called them the sons of God. <clears throat> when he gets to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he then calls them Israel. But you know what else he called Israel? He referred to Israel as my firstborn. Israel was referred to as the son of God. And then after Israel... Things, of course, eventually fall apart with Israel. And so God has to start over again with Jesus Christ. And now we are all in that family of Jesus Christ. And you know what we're called again? Sons of God. Because they're always sons. It's always been sons of God. We see, we see that throughout the Bible. The children of Israel, the saved ones, were the sons of God. We don't often see them called that too because was everybody who is in the nation of Israel saved? No. Okay? Not everybody that was in, now those who were called on the Lord in Genesis, they were all saved. But not everybody in Israel was saved just because they were of Israel, but God was trying to raise up a nation that would follow his laws and that would teach his ways, and of course all those of Israel who called on the Lord, they were saved. And they were sons of God, but we just don't see that term being used. Because so the focus has kind of changed, but it's yet it's still there because he did refer to Israel as a whole as his son, as his firstborn. So it, it's it's a consistent theme that we're seeing here. So the uh, and what we're gonna, and so next week 
as we go through chapter 5, I'm going to show more evidence just showing that if you just read the Bible for what it actually says and get the message that it's trying to give versus looking for something that you want to find, you're going to see that chapters 4, 5, and 6, they all go together. It's the line of Cain, the line of Seth, and then they come together. And I'm going to show more proof of that next week when we, when we go into chapter 5. So this kind of kicks it off. And he said, if you have any questions, if you have any scriptures, uh, I'm planning on doing, after I'm done with these three weeks, I'm planning on doing a live, live stream where I'm going to, I'm going to answer. I'm going to go to all the scriptures. I'm going to go to all these verses and I'm going to, sh- I'm going to show you examples too of what people are doing with the scriptures that is not right, that is not fair, that is not consistent. The Bible is a powerful book. It is an accurate book, but it means what it meant when it was written. And just because Sluter doesn't know what increase meant back then doesn't mean that it's changed. You know, when he believes that we're all going to inhabit other planets one of these days, because the Bible says the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And, you know, and now in North Carolina, increase, you know, it's kind of means like my stomach, you know, just keeps getting bigger and bigger. You know, it just means growing and growing and expanding forever. No, that's not always what increase means. And, but they think that it's like this magical book that, well, my understanding of that word is going to create a new reality. No, it doesn't. You just are misunderstanding it. And people are misunderstanding Genesis chapter 6 because they're trying to insert in there what somebody came up with in their own warped mind. I like what Pastor Bradley called that doctrine. He called it the dirty minded preacher's doctrine. And some of these guys are obsessed with it. And they'll, I mean, some, like Gene Kim, he's talking about animals and humans and, or animals and angels intermingling. And, you know, it's like, can you be any more perverted? The Bible does not teach that. And I wish I had more time to give you some examples of just of things people are doing with the scriptures that aren't fair. Hopefully I'll get to, I'll get to do that next week. But, you know, hang on. We just, we just started it tonight and I'm gonna, it's gonna trigger a lot of people, but I'm not done. Alright? Before, before people get mad at me, let, let me finish this because I'm far from done on this subject. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that this will be a help. Lord, I pray you help us be honest with the Scriptures. Lord, help us to study the Bible to get what you wanted us to get from it. Help us to not go looking for things, Lord, that just aren't there so we can, um, you know, just fulfill the lust of our flesh. Lord, just help us to uh, get, you know, learn the things that you would have us to learn and to be honest in our interpretation of the scriptures in your name we pray amen well let's go ahead